Matthew chapter 5, we are, what, six weeks into an eight-week series called Sermon, where we're looking at the greatest sermon ever exposited, the greatest words ever uttered in this beautiful text of the Bible. And only in week one did we actually turn there uh, as a church body and read it together. And I would love for us to, to do that now, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, I believe it is. And let's read this together. Are you there? We're not waiting. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, back then, it was very popular. It was a rabbinic tradition for uh, the teachers to sit while the people stood. That'd be cool, wouldn't it, to do that in church? Should we do that today? I sit down, and you guys stand. Let's take a vote. No. And he opened his mouth, Jesus did, and taught them, saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This morning we want to look at this idea, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Would you say that with me? We're going to say it together in a second. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You ready? Let's say it together. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, how important is the heart? It's been called the seat, the center, the core, the hub. Solomon said, guard your heart. David prayed, create in me a clean heart. Jesus teaches us, blessed are the pure in heart. How important is your heart today? I remember when I was a little boy, I lived with my family. It's good to know, huh? I lived with my family out in a little town called Pampa, Texas. Ever, ever heard of Pampa, Texas? Just nod your head, raise your hand. Anybody heard of Pampa? Nobody? Okay. There, there we go. It's right next to Amarillo. You guys heard of Amarillo, right? Yeah, a lot of George Strait fans here at church today. And it's, it's in the panhandle of West Texas. And I remember the first time I ever saw one, I was with my parents. I was standing up on the back seat of the car. Kids, no one wore seatbelts back then, right? Parents would be smoking, and if a kid starts coming toward the front windshield, they'll just throw their arm up, right? That was the, that, those were the seatbelts back then, right? And I was standing on the back just peering out, and the first time I'd ever seen one, a refinery. It looked like some science fiction city out there, just on the horizon, and I'm like, Dad, what is that? It, it's a refinery, he told me. And it, had, it was full of hoses and tanks and tubes and valves and circuits and just all this machinery. And the, the machinery, all it was doing was what the name would suggest. It was refining. It would take something and take it in and it would remove the impurities and use what is good. And I believe the heart is like that 
for us. It, it takes in and, and it takes out. Uh, uh, it's a hub. It's a core. It's a refinery. We need to be purified. I believe that is the, the essence of what Solomon said in Proverbs 4, 23. You know it. Guard your heart for it. It's the wellspring of life. Your heart is a beautiful thing, the Scripture teaches. But Jeremiah 17, 9 says, well, it's not so beautiful. It's, it's highly deceitful. We have to be careful of our hearts. Sunday night, a lot of you know, we had uh, Fondren covered in this very room and a bunch of you were here. We had disco night. That's why some of you didn't come because we had disco night. But Gary was concerned, this just to talk a little bit about the quality of leader Gary is, Gary was concerned that we weren't going to dance. He was afraid that we wouldn't wear our costumes and we wouldn't hit the dance floor. So he was conjoling people before Fondra Recovery. Man, get on the dance floor, man. Shake your, shake your groove thing, to quote a, a song from the 70s. And he was really concerned about that. And if you were here, you know that people dance, right? If you heard, if you weren't here, you probably heard. But people danced. Your pastor danced. It was a, a thing of beauty right here on the floor. And others gathered around and shouted my name. I was freestyling to some 70s. We were dancing and there were times when, when I would, of course, sit down and was enjoying the great music that our band, how good were they, by the way? I mean, it was pretty much 98% Fondren Church uh, music guys and it was just an unbelievable night. And I was sitting and laughing at some of you on the dance floor whose moves weren't quite my moves. And I sat laughing slash judging some of you. But no, it was a, it was a great night. And there was a young lady uh, here, as some of you know or may have heard about, who, well, she wasn't scantily clad. Let's just say her clothes were super, super tight. In fact, about as tight as clothes can be. And she began to dance, and we began to wonder who she is. Does anybody know her? And I looked at Susan. I thought, well, maybe we should do something. I mean, I, I looked at her and said, you know, you're the pastor's wife. She's a woman. Go talk to her. We weren't really sure it. it got more and more provocative. This happened really fast until she began twerking in church. And you guys know we don't have a lot of policies. We just have conversations. And Susan asked me, what's our twerking policy? And I said, it's time for you to go have a conversation. And she did. Susan and another woman got her to the side of the room. We were trying to love her. You know, it's that, that mix of, uh, Robert, you feel me here, don't you? It's that mix of just grace and truth. We didn't want to be harsh and judgmental. I mean, the idea was to have a good time, but we had to keep some things out. Now, if you were here, you left laughing and talking about it. Or if you were here and maybe you never come back again, I guess. Maybe there were some of those. I had one guy call me and said, I don't know, Robert, if I'm coming to your church, but I'm sending money to your church. That's what he said. But, you know, if you live, and I really believe that our God is a God of laughter and rest and transparency and joy. And that, at times, can include fun like we had on Sunday night. But some things need to be kept out. Wouldn't you agree? And there's just some things that, if we're not careful, we, we're left unguarded. And we have to make decisions. And your heart is that way. Your heart and my heart is that way. There's, there needs to be laughter and joy and dancing and fun, but we've got to be careful not to let some things in that would be damaging, that would, that would hurt us. Jesus taught later in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let me, as a couple of you emailed me, the Sermon on the Mount is, is recorded for us in Matthews 5, 6, and 7. We're walking through these eight weeks, the Beatitudes. Blessed are you. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. We're looking at each of those. But later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus would talk about 
trees and fruit. And he, he asked the question, do grapes grow from thorns? Do figs grow from thistles? Rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is no. He said that a tree, if it's healthy, bears bad fruit. And a tree that's, that's uh, I'm sorry, a tree that's unhealthy bears bad fruit. A tree that's healthy, it bears good fruit. And you and I, we spend most of our time, energy, money, frustrations... Noticing that if the fruit goes bad, we do what? We try to fix the fruit. And Jesus is saying, if the fruit is bad, you don't spend endless time, energy, money, and frustration trying to fix the fruit. What do you do? You treat the roots, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I believe Jesus is first and foremost trying to tell us that your happiness and mine is contingent upon the critical nature of of our heart. Your heart is crucial to who you are. You know that physically, but the same is true. Remember the analogies, the seat, the center, the core, the hub, a refinery that purifies. Your heart is so critical. Your life depends on it. When someone bites at you, do you bite back or do you hold your tongue? Depends on your heart. If your schedule is too tight, if your to-do list is too long, do you freak out or figure it out? Depends on your heart. If you're served a morsel of gossip marinated in slander, do you pass it on or do you turn it down? Depends on your heart. If you see a homeless person out there, do you see him or her as a burden to society? Or is an opportunity from God? Depends on the status of your heart. And Jesus wants to teach religious people, people like a lot of us who've grown up in a church, who've been close to the God thing, the God talk for a long time. He wants to teach us that there's just this propensity to move and focus on what is outside. And to... Ignore the heart. Our staff team just got back yesterday from Miami. We went to a conference in Fort Lauderdale, and we stayed in South Beach in Miami. It was a great time, just a great team-building time, and we had some great preachers. The first time our staff in a long time have heard from a really good preacher, and they got to just be a part of this conference. Their soul was fed. It's been a long time since that happened, but it was just good to, to be with them, and we were at this really hip South Beach hotel, and a lot of models and beautiful people all around. I felt right at home being there. I mean, just right there. But it was another reminder of our focus on the temporal, on the transient, on the exterior. And Jesus wants to teach His people that it's the interior that matters. Any good counselor knows you got to get to the root of it, not just the fruit. But way too often, we're the external people. To illustrate, let me tell you a um, true story. Several, several, several years ago, when I was a single man, had a couple of roommates, and one was a really good cook, and we had a lot of groceries in the house, and we had a big freezer full of food, especially meat. And we left on a trip, and I was the last one to leave, and I was responsible for doing the, the deed, you know, where you turn off things and set the temperature and just make sure the last 
type, you know, the alarm, all the, everything is set and right. And I, uh, part of that responsibility is unplugging some things. And I made the mistake of unplugging the freezer. Uh-oh, from the front row. And this was, this was a long trip. It was a seven-plus-day trip for all of us. When I got back, what do you think? Man, I opened that freezer. And let's just say it was a moving experience. It was revolting. It was rancid. It was, just was anything but inviting. And you know what I did, right? I, here's what I did. I, I took some soap, some disinfectant. I got some chemicals and some cleaning agents. I had gloves up above my elbows. And I got down on the floor, hands and knees, with these chemicals and cleaning agents and soap and disinfectant. And I scrubbed and scrubbed the outside of that freezer. I mean, it would have passed a Marine Corps boot camp inspection. I shined and polished and buffed, and it was beautiful on the outside. And then I opened the freezer, and it was disgusting, right? But I thought, I've got an idea. Uh, this freezer is lonely. Let me, let me invite some friends. It was a lot of hard work, but we filled the room with appliances from the neighborhood. There were refrigerators and microwaves and stoves and blenders and toasters. We had a great time there in the room. The toasters and, uh, showed up and had a good time, had a lot of jokes. The blenders mixed really well. We, the, the appliances laughed about their limited warranties. Uh, we had a great time. And later when everyone left, I opened the freezer. Still gross. I thought, I know what this freezer needs. It needs some status. So I put a, a Mercedes sticker on it and a Save the Wells sign. And I, gave, I, put a, I placed a cell phone inside and sprinkled some cologne on it. This is what it needs, just some, some status and some style to it. It was classy. I looked at it and said to my freezer, you could be on the cover of Popular Mechanics. You look so stylish and classy. But I opened up the freezer again. The same disgusting results. This freezer of mine, it, it, it needs some high-voltage pleasure. So I got it a copy of Play Fridge magazine where it shows pictures of other freezers with their doors open. <laughs> but it didn't work. I opened the freezer again to no avail. And it raises the question, my silly illustration does. Who would concentrate on the outside when the problem is on the inside? But that's a good question. Who does that? Obviously, I didn't. My illustration was made up. But who does that? Who would concentrate on the outside? The homemaker does. Who is sunk into depression? And she has a friend, a friend who tells her, well, buy a new dress. It'll make you feel better. There's a husband who's guilty about an affair that he's having. And the guilt is just as great as the sense of adventure. And one of his buddies tells him, well, get a change peer groups. Get a, a new set of friends. Get some guilt-free friends. Some friends that think it's normal, that it's right, that it's okay, that are doing the same thing. That'll smile and wink and nod at it. The young professional who doesn't have really any good friendships because he's 
seeking career advancement and money. He's overly ambitious. And his boss tells him to get a new haircut, flash some cash, change your style. We are creatures who spend our days on the exterior. But how hollow it is to have exterior polish, but to have interior pain. Jesus wants to teach us, especially religious people. It's not the symptoms. It's the root. Endlessly, our pursuits don't cut it. It's not deep enough. It's not working for us, is it? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, this word pure in our day, unfortunately, has become kind of a, an undesirable word. I, if we say pure at times, I, I, I feel like we feel like it means to not be fully human. It has the meaning of being quaint or Victorian or prudish or puritanical. But in Scripture, the word pure had a very high value. You can read Titus chapter 2 and verse 3. It talks about the purity of cleansing and being washed uh, in the Word and what, what, what it means when the grace of God appears in our lives and the pure effect that it ought to have. In Ephesians chapter 5, when it talks about being filled with the Spirit, about praising God and having right relationships and how our homes and our hearts will be healthier if we were pure and we had God's cleansing, the cleansing of His Word. It's the same thing Jesus prayed in John 17, that we would be one, that we would be cleansed through the washing of the Word. The word pure has connotations of, of something being in its pure, in its essence, in its essential form. It's something that's unadulterated, unblemished, uncontaminated, undefiled. I love this passage I stumbled on this week in James chapter 4. It says to us, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now keep that up there if you would for a minute, Jay. What a beautiful passage. Here Jesus teaches us, Blessed are the pure in heart. And half-brother James later says, Purify your heart, you what? You double-minded. Anybody remember the movie City Slickers from so, so long ago? And funny man Billy Crystal was riding a horse and there was a scene where he was kind of... You know, on the I guess at a crossroads in life, he had this vague sense of dissatisfaction. He had a job, a career, he had a family, he was making some level of money, he had a few buddies around, but he just felt like something was really missing in his life. He was going through that midlife crisis that were uh, that people talk about. I, I wouldn't know, but I've read about it. And Billy Crystal has this uh, at this point of frustration, and his, his buddy, one of the actors in the film, looks at him and says. You need the, the meaning of life. He says, well, what's the meaning of life? And he, he puts up his cowboy finger and he says, this is the meaning of life. And Billy Crystal says, your, your finger is the meaning of life? And he says, no, the meaning of life is in pursuing one thing. My wife is leading a group of ladies, or at least they have, this past several months, studied a book 
you know, in a small group on Monday nights called Having a Merry Heart in a Martha World. Did I get that right? Having a Merry Spirit in a Martha World. Say it out loud, babe. Having a Merry Spirit. Okay. Well, that's just my tagline. and That would be a better title, don't you think? Don't you think? I mean, that's why they need me to be editor. Anyway, the book, Having a Merry Spirit in a Martha World. And you'll know this story. Here's what I do know. It's in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. Okay. And there's this story where Jesus is with his two of his friends, Martha and Mary. And most of you know it. Certainly my wife and the girls in her small group do. And, and Martha is, she's troubled. She's worried about preparations. Hospitality is her God. And she thinks Jesus cares about things that he doesn't care about. And Mary is right there at his feet feasting on his words and in worship there. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you were what? Anxious and troubled about, say it if you know it, you're anxious and troubled about? About many things. But Mary has chosen, do you know it? The one thing. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, this one thing I pursue. He said, I'm leaving behind a lot so that I can pursue this one thing. When I read James, the half-brother of Jesus, saying, purify your hearts, you double-minded, it makes me think of my own double-mindedness. I have a reputation at times of being a flip-flopper. I vacillate and I, I change my mind. I, I say one thing sometimes and, and, and text or call at the last minute and say, let's do this. I mean, it's easy. Anybody inflicted with what I'm inflicted with? And it's just, it's just easy. In a world where we are anxious and troubled about many things, where we multitask. Some of you have got multitasking down to a serious art form. But to sit and to do one thing. And you know what I know, that in Luke chapter 10, there's the story of the Good Samaritan that we referenced last week. The goal is not just to sit around, but for busy, hurried people to be able to pursue one thing is what Jesus is saying. There is two traits to the double-minded, as I've thought about them. The first is multiplicity. That is just so much, so much, so much. Some are diagnosed with ADD or ADHD. But I think spiritually, we're myopic in our mission and where our vision is stunted, our passion is polluted because there's just so much in our heads, so much that's rolling around in us. And multiplicity is when you just can't seem to focus on one thing. Every great life is never about moderation. Have you thought about that? If you read biographies, if you watch those shows that depict people who've achieved something, who've advanced humanity, who've done something with justice, mercy, or compassion, or have created something as an artist, or given us something in entertainment, or been a spectacle in sports, every life that achieves greatness is not marked by moderation. It's marked by unbelievable focus. And Jesus wants to teach us that the purity of life is not in its multiplicity. It's not in us chasing a bunch of rabbits. Our lives, as one writer said, uh, can resemble an octopus on ice skates where we're just going in a bunch of different directions. That's multiplicity. 
And here's something, another word, duplicity. Duplicity is, is having a falseness to our double-mindedness. It's when, we, when, when what we're saying and what we're doing doesn't match up, when interior and exterior is at odds. Jesus would take that even a step further. In fact, one of the most common things Jesus talked about was hypocrisy. Did you know that? Read Matthew chapter 23. There are seven woes that Jesus denounces toward religious people. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Now, we love Matthew 5. We love blessed, 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 blessed. But if you're going to be blessed, if your life is going to be pure, unadulterated, undefiled, unblemished, uncontaminated, if it's going to be a spiritual pursuit in its essential form, then we have to know the woes as well as the blessings. And hypocrisy. If you could sum up the woes from Matthew chapter 23, it's when Jesus is is hardcore. If you could sum up the woes, it would be woe to you hypocrites. Woe to you whitewashed tombs, you religious people. And duplicity is that double-mindedness that has a falseness to it. And if you're in church today, if you're here right now, and you're living a lie, what I want you to hear is that in Christ, there's no more condemnation. Matt Chandler, y'all heard of Matt Chandler, pastor of Village Church in Texas. He preached, he opened our conference down in South Florida from Romans chapter 8. An unbelievable sermon about God's grace about how all things do work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. How nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. But if you're living a lie and you've got your Sunday morning face and your rest of the week face, today this this message of blessed are the pure in heart is a call for you to seek God's grace and forgiveness. To find his rest, to to be transparent, to open up to that. Now, what's the blessing? The blessing for the pure at heart. We've talked about how important your heart is. We talked about how Jesus says that it really is it's it's essentially who you are. It affects everything about you. And Jesus is saying you're blessed if your heart is pure. No multiplicity, no duplicity. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Have it a mind that stays on Christ. But what is this idea of they will see God? Jesus is actually making a reference to Psalm 24 where it says, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? In other words, who's going to see God? He who has a clean hand and a pure heart. This is the one who will see God. A lot of you know, or at least know about the Taj Mahal. It's one of the great architectural feats um, in history over in India. And I was reading on Friday just some facts about the construction of this great temple. And the Shah, Shah Jahal, was building this for his fourth wife, the mother of 14 of his children. He was constructing this temple in her honor. He w- she was the wife, evidently, that he genuinely loved. And he built, had this 
coffin in the center. And the idea was to construct a palace like none other in the world that would take her in. The church we were in this week in, uh, called Coral Ridge Presbyterian down in Fort Lauderdale had a, a pipe organ that was worth an estimated $1.5 million. I think they built the church around the pipe organ. Beautiful, beautiful. And his idea was to construct this palace in her honor that uh, no expense would be spared. Bring in the best builders and the best architects, the, be- the best brain and the best brawn, and let's team together and build something to honor her forever. And as weeks turned into months, he got so consumed in the construction. He got so passionate about this project that he no longer would mourn her loss. The story is told that at one point when he was walking from from point A to point B across the construction of this great project, that he bumped into a box. And frustrated, the box got some dust on him. And he ordered some of the men to have the box removed. And this removal of the box, he didn't know, was the disposal of the coffin. And it laid hidden under layers of dust and time. Now, the Taj Mahal is fascinating to study. If you have any free time today, check it out. But this this reality, this true story, to me is so haunting. It leaves me and maybe us today with a question, can you construct a temple and forget the reason why? Can you build a palace and forget the royalty? Can you sculpt something so beautiful but forget the hero? My answer to that question is, go to church, any church. And look around. You see, in most churches, there are savior seekers. There are those who are wide-eyed and expectant. They've prepared for the morning. And there's no way they're going to forget the one who is slain. In fact, for them, that's what it's all about. The savior seekers. They're, they're children unwrapping a gift on, on Christmas morning. But along with the Savior seekers are the temple builders. And they come. They shuffle their feet. They dart their eyes. They doodle with their hands. When their mouths open, it's not to sing in worship. It's to yawn. Oh, they love church. They love their church. They praise its pastors and cite its programs. But they've long forgotten the one who was slain. They, many of them will wear hats and hoses, co- coats and ties. They'll come often, come early, and maybe sit down front. But they haven't seen the Savior. And there's this invitation from our Lord to open our eyes to see. To have this awareness of what really matters. You see, temple builders leave church and they go, Oh, what a, what a great church. Savior seekers leave and say, what an unbelievable Savior. This invitation, it's to be this gift. I'm a fan of the book of Acts. Look at what one passage says. I'm going to draw a contrast. Acts 28 to 27. For this people's hearts, they have become calloused. Did you get that? Their hearts 
become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might what? See with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Look earlier at Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. When the people heard this, they were what? Cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You see, you and I can have a calloused heart. Seeing without really grasping. Hearing without it cutting deep. And we're calloused. But there's an opportunity for us to be cut to the heart. You're affected by it. When I was in college, Bon Jovi would sing, Shot to the heart. You're to blame. Darling, you give love a bad name. The idea I'm sure Bon Jovi was expressing is that he was angry at somebody who wouldn't love him in return. And he was, what, shot to the heart. He was cut to the heart. It, it, it got deep into him. And the idea for us is to have this openness. And I think Jesus is saying to us that our sense of happiness, our health and our well-being, being the healing that He wants to bring to your life is in proportion to its purity. But our purity has to be worked out because you and I were double-minded. This morning, we're going to take communion. And as I was driving the one point, well, point nine mile to church this morning. I thought, I had this really cool thought that came over me that this morning, and you're going to appreciate this if you've been here for two and a half years, but this will be the last time that as a church family we take communion right here. That next month we'll be right next door. And for me, that's a special time to think about God's faithfulness in the life of our church to think about the work that he's done. Last week when we baptized Mary Catherine, we cited Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you, he'll perfect it to the day of Christ. The work that Jesus began in you, that we celebrate in baptism and communion, it's a work of forgiving. It's a work of healing. And today I want to call us to open up to let it cut our hearts. For, for Christ to remove the callousness of your heart today and mine, if it is such. And to remind us of the one who was slain. Topher's going to come and play and we're going to have some leaders uh, take the four corners of our church. And some folks who are going to just usher you to show you what station to go to and what manner to proceed. And as a church family, the, the final Sunday of every month is when we observe our Savior. When we do this, as He said, in remembrance of Him. And it's how we'll respond in worship today. There'll be a bread, unleavened bread, to dip into juice or wine. The cups are labeled. And you take that and take the corner and dip into the wine or to the juice. And you'll have a leader there at that corner telling you, this is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. And just uh, respond accordingly. But we want this time to be a time where He'll work on the callousness of our hearts. And that we would begin to see more and more the good news 
of our Savior. Would you pray with me and then we'll observe the Lord's Supper.